the exact script for the intro. No, no. <laughs> whatever, whatever you want. You're doing it now. <laughs> You're already stoked. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> this is Calvin Cowboys, part two. Yeah, who are you? Oscar yeah. Pierce, Palmer Oscar. Primori. Oscar, I've, I've, I genuinely thought somebody of your standing would have fired off an intro like as if it was, you know, as a, as a true professional, we, we, we've known and expected. I thought I was expecting something in Latin. But, uh, you know, I'm a little bit intimidated. They say that you, you should never meet your heroes and I'm just, you know, I've got anxiety. I'm stressed. Uh, it's, it's, it can be like that, you know, when you're, when you're staring down the barrel of us. It's, it's difficult. It's tough, and now and now people now people realise the first 150 episodes or so we, 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 we had to do the intro. <laughs> how rubbish we were! Well, it's all about benchmarking. This is the thing. We'll start really badly and then we'll get better, mm. or we'll start off really badly and get worse, which is probably <laughs> typical. And anyway, I'm actually normally what we what one of the things that we're actually starting to do on this podcast is after the intro is address complaints to the podcast mm. since the previous one. This is this is before the sixth sense as well, isn't it? Yeah, well, we've just got to get out our complaints department. Uh, <laughs> I apologise for speaking over people. Uh, I, I do apologise, but it's probably not going to change. Uh, but at least I'm aware of the issue. Um, and I'll, I'll endeavour my hardest to not talk over people. But again, it's... I feel seen, Andrew. I feel seen. Thank you. It's um, it is. It's one of those things, though, that a bit like um, the AA meetings and all those things that when you acknowledge your behaviour, you know, that's the first step, Andrew. So it's a positive acknowledgement. Hundred percent. Like, yeah. I've I've acknowledged that I've got a drink problem. I mean, a talking awful problem. Um, it's not a drink problem anyway. It's uh, what's what's what did what did Winston Churchill say? About drink problems. Oh, he's had a few famous comments around that. I'll come. We'll come back to that later on. I'll Google yeah. it whilst we're whilst we're chatting. Right. Six cents. We'll jump into it. We're not even going to explain it. Let's just get into it. We know it. Um, regenerative agriculture. Undefined. Mm-hmm. I go with that one. That's, that's a polite way. Black pudding. Awfully good. Uh, I see. Here we go. Uh, hey, yeah. A pun on everything. A pun on everything. That's good. Um, well, this, is the, this is the next crucial one then. Crocs footwear. So I store when I was about 12 years old, I, uh, dad came back from a Congrowers conference and he brought back these pens that were made from a bioplastic. So a corn byproduct manufacturing process using corn as your input, bioplastic, fully 100% biodegradable. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, ocean pollution and all the other issues completely solved right there. The only problem that every one of these pens was about 20 bucks was what it cost. And, um, and then four years later, I opened this little box up and the pens had fallen to nothing but powder and ashes. Um, they just completely biodegraded like they were supposed to. It was awesome. And so, yeah, why the fuck are Crocs not made out of the same material? You can wear them and then they go away. Well, why would, so, you, why would you need to get rid of them when they last forever on your feet? 
yeah, and choke right. every porpoise in the ocean. Well, you don't throw them away. That's the problem. You just keep <laughs> so from that from that perspective, then that's you don't like them then because of their lack of biodegradable. Your, your feet will wear away with the crops are wearing. <laughs> Anyway, it's good. Yeah, good. Yeah. It's actually, I feel actually, but before we go on to my one, I feel a bit sort of overwhelmed now because now normally Matt's the resident greenie on the podcast. <laughs> I am actually. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just putting in more solar this month, actually, Andrew. Sorry. Well done. Right, up. Let's, uh, let's go. Uh, mandatory ESG reporting. Sensible. Um, the devil will be in the details. We don't know. And we don't know how it's going to work and the devil's going to be in the details, whether it's not a big deal or whether it's a market opportunity or if it's a giant costly clusterfuck, the devil is in the details. Carbon farming. Um, this is, yeah, okay. that was the line from um, the battle scene in Braveheart where the Irishman's next to William Wallace and he says, um, you know, the Lord tells me he can get you out of it, but he's pretty sure you're fucked. Well, <laughs> Yeah, that's my that's my anticipation of that. That there's a huge number of really big problems coming down the line for people who are engaged with currently or looking at future carbon farming options. Um, there's just many mind gels. And yeah, look, the the carbon cowboys podcast you done you guys have done previously talked about that pretty well. You know, it's out there now, but it was one of those things early in the carbon market. No one was really talking about both the the market risks all the commercial risks that are in contracts through aggregators and no one will get the biophysical risks. That was, so, that was, that was a, I, don't, I don't want to mean to interrupt Oscar. There's a, a lot, there's a long answers for that. These are yeah. long answers. I know you're a man of many words, but these are long answers for a, for a one word answer, but we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. We're going to come back to it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, have I got one to go? Okay. Well, you kind of answered that one in it. So I'm going to think of another one, completely different favorite band. <laughs> I'm old school, Powderfinger. Still love them. Okay. Well, they're, still, they're still actually they're not they're no longer around as a band though, isn't it? Bernard Fanning's gone, done his own thing these days, and the others have retired yeah, somewhere. Yeah. Like the fact that they've done two, and I've been to two different final tours in like regional areas, Tamworth and Toowoomba. <laughs> it shows there they'll keep coming back. They'll be here forever. Okay. I had a mate. I had a mate that was into music years ago. And he said to me one night, I was living in Fitzroy in Melbourne at the time. He goes, oh, come and see this new band. It was at some little pub in Fitzroy. It had about 20 people in it. And uh, it was Powderfinger uh, before they made it big, you know, before that Double Allergic oh, album. You're so cool. And, uh, well, that was um, I'm in, I'm in awe. That was a long time ago, Andrew. <laughs> Obviously a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> the days when I used to go to the pub to see a band rather than just drink with you. Yeah, true. Well, if you don't mind, just before, I want to just I want to actually get you to I'm, Matt. I'm going to get you to turn off your camera, and I'm going to turn mm -hmm. on my camera just so we can mm -hmm. try and prove Oscar's internet connection. Yep. So we can't see each other now. This would be odd. Going flying blind now. Flying blind. Ooh. Right. Oh, mandatory ESG reporting. This is new thing. Mm -hmm. Under. Yeah, undefined well, is what you said. No, no, no. The undefined was regard to the regen. Oh yeah, uh, devil, devil's in the detail. Devil's, devil's in, in the detail. detail. Yeah, yeah. Tell us, tell us what you know about because I've been reading a bit about it uh, last night and this morning. So this yep. is you. What? What? Uh, this this defined ESG. I think that's the hardest bit. What well, is? And so, like, let's just break it down. So, 
you know, for, for many years, the, the trend's been let's go into some form of ESG, so environment, social governance reporting. Um, and some of those funds around the world that do ESG reporting are performing better than um, non-reporting funds. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why it's become more of a focus, um, you know, from the, the, the woke capitalism ideas through to directed investment, through to just the fact that in some cases it makes good business sense, um, monitoring and reporting things better. Um, can actually improve your business. Okay, that's fine. This new idea, though, that's come in is to take one part of that and one of the most important parts of that, which is your emissions. Um, and essentially, the Australian Treasury Department, uh, and this, you know, this is late, late June, early July that this was announced, um, decided that it would introduce a new legislative instrument, so a law that doesn't exist yet, to create mandatory climate-related reporting for large companies. Mm-hmm. Um, when they did that, they <coughs> they referred to a, an international standard. IFRS um, too. Not an Australian standard. Yeah. So ISSB. And the ISSB has a climate standard, the IR, oh, sorry, IFRS uh, scope two, uh, which S2 sets out these specific related disclosures, which includes companies that are brought in under this having to report scope one scope two and what's new is the scope three emissions yeah because that's 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 because because i was just looking through the the document from the treasury this morning and that's one of the things that they talk about is scope one and scope two is going to be mandatory in the first couple of years followed by scope yeah. three not that far after but look Let's, this is the yeah. key thing. Do you want to define the difference between is, scope one, two, and three for those that aren't aware? Yeah, because that's because one of the things I always find, and I don't mean to interrupt again, so I apologize, uh, is that there's a lot of gobbledygook when it comes to carbon markets and emissions. So what are scope one, two, and three in layman's terms for the listeners? So much. Okay, so from a farmer's point of view, my scope one emissions are the emissions that I create on farm. So, you know, my... My methane belching cows and my fertilizer that's all going up into the atmosphere because I spread it badly or, you know, the diesel that I burn in my tractors, um, that's my scope one. Um, so the direct if emissions. If I use Matt, yeah, my direct emissions, yeah, in, in, and use in, in, in production of those commodities that I sell. Um, let's say, Matt, you're my truck driver and logistics operator and Andrew, you're a major um, multinational grain company. Um, That's about right. When I sell my grain to you using Matt as my truckie, then your emissions are your own scope one emissions. Matt is your scope two, you know, your transport and facilitation inputs, and I am your scope three. So a farmer's scope one emissions are, say, a bulk handler's scope three emissions. And that's why this... Um, this sustainability framework changing, and it is new, changing to include scope three emissions, that suddenly means that if, for instance, a big multinational um, bulk handler gets dragged into this legislation and has to report its scope one, two, and three, then it's gonna have to go to its supply chain, to its farmers and say, can we have your information please? Because we need to report your Scope one, which is our scope three emissions. So yeah, because that, that's, that's the thing that I noticed when reading through the document. <clears throat> the companies that are going to have to mandatory report are the larger scale enterprises, yeah? So not generally, generally not farmers. 
Yeah. Apart, apart from maybe 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 your farm, Oscar, because you're pretty big. Well, I'm so fucking huge, man. I'm massive. So. But yeah. but but the scope free emissions. That's the question. Is like scope free emissions can be anything from business travel to supply chain emissions up up Correct. up and downstream. Yes. But so, doesn't that doesn't that doesn't that a to a degree double count the emissions? But that's assuming that the original scope one farmers are, I guess, are reporting in some capacity anyway. Or alternatively, is it? It's kind of like an audit process that'll require a lot of bureaucracy to manage, right? To 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 figure out what are, what are your scope three emissions? Exactly, exactly. So, for a, I mean, this is the big question that you know there isn't really an answer for. This document only just came out from Treasury, and you know, NFF and a bunch of farm groups are all looking at this, going, well, what does it mean? And there's going to, you know, there's got a nothing's fixed yet. But um, let's take that bulk handler. It could, you know, simply say, I bought a, I bought a thousand tons of wheat. Um, I'll use a, an assumed methodology and say, mm -hmm. on average, uh, one ton of wheat creates this many units of CO2 equivalent total emissions in production. I'll just use an average figure. I'll mm -hmm. times that by a thousand and there's my scope three. It's a rough and dirty estimate um, using standard emissions factors. Yeah, cool. Righto. Um, that's the easy way to do it. The much more difficult way would be if the individual company set up its own sort of tools, maybe a, a, a statutory declaration, and that farmer had to fill out a specific set of um, their own actual information from their own farm, like real figures on fuel use, glyphosate use, chemical use, et cetera, et cetera, put all of those actual real figures into some declaration that they, they then attach and send um, with their contract or or with uh, with a vendor deck or something like that, so there is not clarity on is it going to be something that farmers are barely aware of, or is it something that we're going to have to spend a shitload of time in the office, yeah, uh, and generating it, onerous kind of audit stuff. It could be. Mm. Um, there's reason to think maybe not though. So well, it wouldn't uh, make, it wouldn't make all that much sense for. An organization to want to go down that route unless there's some value in it like the best route to go down would be industry averaging it would and, and and just throwing in a you know quick quick number that says you know this is on average what a you know new south wales grain farm produces or or or, or what a, the average cow in australia produces is that not what's already done by like the un Largely, yeah, and, and the Commonwealth Government itself, essentially, too. That's what those emissions factors are. The, the issue there is, though, what's the story that it's reporting? So if you jump onto those emissions factors, you know, mm -hmm. you, you know call it, let's just call it a rough per cow average, um, that's not necessarily, depending on the tool and the system that that, that company or, or government uses, it's not necessarily reporting the whole picture. So, you know, for instance, I've been looking at the, the GAF tool, GAF tool, which is a, an easy standardized way to do that. You can put in your own figures or you can just use assumed numbers, um, but it doesn't include any of the good stuff. So revegetation um, and the carbon from long-term 25 year old revegetation, it doesn't include soil carbon and, and it doesn't include some of those things that a lot of graziers want. And, you know, a lot of regen people are talking about, you know, that cycle between grasses, the soil and the, and the productive environment. None of that stuff is in there. You've just got the, well, essentially, all the the negatives, the emissions, and none of the offsets. 
so what do we want to paint? You know, do we want a picture out there of, you know, Australian agriculture is going terribly? And how does that work if Australian businesses are reporting using one set of rules which only include our emissions and none of our good stuff, none of our sinks? What if other countries aren't using that system? What if they're using a better system that includes a net position, offsets and, and emissions? Are we going to look really crappy? Like is, is, a, is a big multinational, you know, are they going to be going, well, our Australian numbers are terrible. Uh, we'll stop buying some Australian wheat or we'll, we'll, we'll price down Australian wheat because of that. Like there's just so many questions. I, no one knows. Um, mm. And so it's going to take a while to evolve. Yeah, it's going to take a while for things to become clearer and it's going to take some decisions by some companies and it's going to take some decisions by industry peak bodies and, and farmer organisations too. So do you, think the peak, do you think the peak bodies are on top of this? Yeah, they are now. Um, essentially, agriculture wasn't consulted though. Like, you know, that treasury document, I mean, agriculture is like 12 to, depends what you call it, 12 to 17% of Australia's national emissions. We're about 80% of all of, of all of the country's offsets. And yet we weren't even consulted. The peak bodies weren't consulted at all. The first they knew of it was when this document goes public. Um, how, how much? How much? How much of it is a good thing that there's going to be with, with this rolled out? There'll be more focus on ESG, right, and the ES part particularly. Um, mm -hmm. So that potentially could be a good thing longer term for environmental credentials or sustainability, all that stuff where we're heading. But then yeah. also makes me think how much of it is a bit of a boon for ESG consultants. <laughs> yeah, you know? I'm, um, I'm just trying to think. Do we set up ep3esg.com? You know. Yeah. And also, and I guess also how much of it is just a way to greenwash as the other aspect, if I'm just being, you know, devil's advocate. Exactly, Matt. Is like, I don't, I don't have an answer that's a good one. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is there's going to be IT companies, service delivery companies jumping onto this stuff really quickly. There's going to be everyone trying to produce different methodology. Like, it's Wild West stuff. Um, and it could be... You know, it could be a positive. We could end up with a narrative tools, systems and good data reporting and Australian ag looks awesome and it represents our performance as, as efficient, low emitting um, suppliers of a whole range of commodities. Yeah, it could. That could help us get market access. It could help companies pay more for our product. Um, at the same time, we've got to be pretty freaking careful about this because it could be us passing information with no value added to us that's used in negative ways, um, either by companies, countries, um, or, or you know, we might just be, end up paying a fortune um, for another service provision or another subscription to some, some um, data farmer. So I, I can't say now whether it's good, bad, or ugly. There the, is potentially the, good, and there's the, some potential there was, massive problems. There was a few submissions from agriculture in this process. Mm. Agricultural Innovation Australia, AECO, Australian Dairy Industry Council, yep. uh, APL, Carol Australia, and MLA. Mm -hmm. That was it. Yeah. So, look, I guess it has, has it'll be interesting to read through those. They're all pretty short in yeah. reality. I, look, we're I, having a discussion at New South Wales Farmers about this. Um, Next week, there's an annual conference. There's a big range of views. Like some farmers are really focused on, we've got to get those offsets, those positive stories built in. Other farmers are really concerned about the data code issues. 
Um, mm. You know, where where is my privacy going here? How much information am I going to have to hand over? Other farmers are talking about, well, look, we should use some collective bargaining here and make sure we get a premium if we have to produce this information. Go to that extra expense of but measuring what, and monitoring. What if it, and this, I guess this is a question: is do we actually have a a value in there? Yeah. Like, do we actually, can we actually say that there is a premium available within the marketplace? Because that's- <laughs> is, it, is, it, it, is, it, is it chasing a premium or is it avoiding a discount? Yeah. And <laughs> it, the longer I speak to people about ESG, the more people have told me there's no real premium. It's just, it's just going to become the new norm. Well, and this is the thing, like, well, I don't know if you guys listen to Freakonomics, but they had a podcast on this recently talking about um, the impacts of ESG reporting in terms of directed finance. So, you know, this thing that the Republicans call the go woke, go broke ideas, but, you know, the, the idea that ESG reporting allows investors to then direct their funds into better performing businesses and sectors. Um, the, the problem is for agriculture is that in some of those weighted funds where funds assess the ESG impacts of, of different businesses, they often put agriculture in the brown or dirty category and just go, no, we're not funding that. So this idea that's been around for a long time and, and you know, the idea that farmers would do well and then attract cheaper capital and we'd have lower interest rates and, you know, all sorts of good stuffs and premiums um, because we were good farmers. Um, maybe that's not true. Like it, in some cases, these investors are just going, no, we just don't like agriculture or we just don't like cattle, um, you know, will choose to invest in, uh, you know, a, a vegan um, a vegan organic farm in Cambodia rather than um, the Australian beef industry, just on a, on a value choice. So ESG could be a double-edged sword. It may create not premiums but discounts for the majority of Australian farmers. And so it's not something where you can just say, yeah, this is great, this will be wonderful. The propensity of investors the tools and systems we use at Farmgate and the supply chain arrangements are all actually pretty important. So it's, it's interesting because we because like on on our on our day job, Matt and I talk to a lot of food companies, yeah. <clears throat> and there is very much a, a, a sort of a changing viewpoint, or the ESG is important, yeah, but nobody's really able to snag a premium for it. Yeah. And it's that, yeah. and that's the issue I see is it's just become an extra burden that they've got to do just to operate. And I think the yeah, manager reporting is going to be one. Of, I've agree that the concerns that the manager reporting, if it's pushed on to the larger entities, they will push it down the line to the suppliers, especially for well, you have to for the scope free. Well, we saw that at the, when we had the pig farm, Andrew. That you know, if you're supplying to the likes of a, one of the big retailers, I won't name. I don't want to give them any free advertising. But we, we, were, we were eventually supplying our pork to them, and they had their own requirements. And so, part of the audit process was we had to, you know, tick off with the auditor against and that's, um, and that's, everything and they required, right? And that's quality certifications, and that's something that is really interesting because when you look at intensive industries uh, like eggs, pork, and poultry they have these quality certifications that you have to adhere to these quality audits. Yep. However, that's, that's pretty rare industry in agriculture. Like you don't really do it in grains other than ISCC, which is a random audit, but in the UK, now we were 
everyone gets audited for everything. You, ma- you mentioned that when you came across originally from Ireland to Australia, Andrew. When I, when um, I, came, when I came from Ireland, <laughs> I was following the lucky charms. And you, said, mentioned, you mentioned how, how there was hardly any documentation like you used to have to put out when you are yeah, doing I said, this. Uh, yeah. To be sure, to be sure, because when I came over here, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to get myself a truck. And uh, I was wondering about quality certifications. <laughs> and uh, I can't keep it up. I can only do an Northern Irish accent as well. And I can't do my Northern Irish accent because it usually goes into being... Uh, Oh, I am really related. What are you, Protestant? Are you Catholic? Uh, but, uh, you know, like quality certifications were huge. Like as a business, I, I was actually, I'm a ISO 9001 qualified lead auditor. I'll have you know. Um, and we had to audit our own sites. We had to audit our external sites. And not, not, not for emissions at that point, but it was just quality making sure that, you know, a truck wasn't carrying fish meal or glass, yeah. all that kind of stuff. But it was, it was when, when people started complaining in Australia about the ISCC audits, I was like, you haven't seen anything yet. Like our call, we had five or six quality certifications as a business. Each of those had a hundred page quality manual and each of those required an audit pretty much for our business scale, once a month at some yeah. one place in the country. That doesn't happen. And look, we, we, you know, I've, I've written a lot feeders manual um, for the family business. We've done LPA, QA and that sort of thing. And we've done some, we do a bit of, you know, some weird and wonderful hippie yuppie wanker um, style boutique grain growing where you do have that, those certification systems. Yeah. And hey, there's a premium at the moment for those things. So the extra work, uh, both on ground and to record all that, there is a premium. Will there be a premium for this stuff in ESG? Um, I don't think mm, so. Yeah, p- possibly not. And and so this is why the other thing, and this sounds like raving old school ag socialism, but one of the ideas that has possibly some legs is what if we went and pulled some of those collective bargaining powers? Uh, here we go. Here comes Trotsky. <laughs> yeah, socialist, radical socialist. Uh, but, you know, it would only take 20 minutes to get Oscar, bloody Oscar the Red out. <laughs> yeah, communist hippie. Sorry. But I mean, you know, why not say, look, here's a new standard. There's going to be a code of practice, something like what happened in horticulture um, with the mandatory code of practice um, being put in place by the ACCC. We're going to collectively bargain. And sure, if the big multinationals want my wheat with the carbon report, um, okay, you can have it, but this is what it's going to cost you. There'll be a discrete premium. And those companies that aren't required to report under the Treasury regulations will not have to offer that same premium because they won't have to offer that, uh, will require that information. Um, hmm. Yeah, I know. It's pretty unrealistic, but it's it's, also, well, I, I, I've got I've got no issue with this sort of the manager Boring. I don't imagine the, the collective bargaining. Like I think that's generally, you know, the old Scottish unionism. You yeah. Know, United, <laughs> we are divided or something. Uh, but Auntie, Auntie Julie, be proud of you, mate. Mm. Although she's pretty sure with her entire <laughs> career within uh, the banking industry, she's probably not socialist. Uh, but the 
it's a, but then it comes down to like, do do we really see a premium for, uh, like, premiums and discounts are a difficult thing to measure. Because a premium isn't always a premium. A premium is yeah. sometimes just a given. And I think that's like, even when we look at the sustainable canola into Europe, it just becomes the norm. And even yeah. the likes of, like people always argue about uh, us having a, a discount to GM canola. Well, it's, is it a discount or is it just, is GM is actually the norm globally? Yeah. So I think it's, I, I, I don't think it will result in a premium. I reckon it'll just be the cost of doing business. And, and look, the other that, thing, that's what remembering that, that consumers have been telling their retailers and supply chains for years how much, you know, we'd, we'd, you know regularly you'll get 60 or 70% of consumers saying that they'd pay more for a particular attribute, one of these non-functional attributes that's desired, whether it's organics or, um, you know, welfare issues or emissions and environmental issues. Um, the, the thing to remember with all of that is that let's say 60 or 70% say they'll pay for that in consumer focus groups. When those products are trialled, and they have been at retail in Australia, you take that 60 or 70 and you drop it down to six or seven. That's the percentage of people that actually pay a small amount more. Most people are not prepared to do that. And the economic climate is changing too. So, you know, back in 2019, 20, there was a, you know, potentially as much as $142 trillion I saw in one report of this environmentally or sustainably linked finance that was out there globally, which could have been deployed to give farmers low interest loans. And consumers were buying products um, with all these extra attributes and happy to pay a little bit more for that. Um, but hey, the world's turned. Like, have a look at your interest rates, look at inflation, look at all the, the cost of living pressures that the average Australian consumer is under now. Do you think in that environment that they're going to be paying more for, a, for an attribute of emissions recording? Um, and, and do you think that these finance funds that were there two, three, four years ago, are they still there? And I'm not finding answers to that. Like, there's a few indications that there's been a huge flight of capital from that. Um, focused or ethically linked funded um, those those funds and uh, um, themselves. So that pool of do good money may have disappeared. Uh, and so that is a big question. What's the what's the market implications? And it could be that we're just having to do this and suck it up. Um, suck it up. And princess. so in that context, yeah, the, the old unionist uh, collective bargaining idea doesn't seem so stupid because there's nothing else that will in any way compensate farmers for the extra costs that they're having to incur. Look, I've, I, do, I do think that is going to be <clears throat> one, of the, one of the big challenges is that there's not going to be any premium. Uh, just, just to highlight as well, so it's actually coming, the proposed roadmap is for three groups. So the first group is 2024-25. So that's not long. That's next financial no. year. Yeah. Uh, we, Matt and I are in this group, so we have to manage reports straight away. Well, $100 million um, a year turnover. It's actually, it's, it's $1 billion. We control assets of a $1 billion. <laughs> or a consolidated revenue of $500 million or more. So we'll be up front. Yep, we'll be there straight away. <laughs> then it drops uh, to, uh, basically drops half again. Yep. And yep. half again after that. So then, if, like eventually, the group three... Uh, well, two of the following, yeah, has over 100 employees. So there will be some ag companies. Aeco would be in that. Yeah. A uh, couple of horticultural ones would be in that. 
the value of consolidated gross assets at the end of financial year of the company and the entities it controls 25 million or more. And the consolidated revenue is 50 million or more. So is that the group? That's the group three one, yeah? No, that's yeah. just group three as in the roadmap for managing disclosures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of the threshold of when you have to start disclosing. Well, that's just, that's actually just that's actually just to start manager reporting itself. Then it's okay, right, got right. one, two, then three yeah. in, a, in a timeline after that. So, so Oscar, we'll we'll be up there first, so we can give you yeah. some tips when Thanks, you get down to to group three. Uh, Important to note, though, this is not set in stone, right? This is Treasury putting out a thought bubble for future policy. They haven't released draft legislation. This isn't being put into a parliamentary committee yet, <laughs> you know. This is just their first public, here's what we're thinking so far. Will that change? Well, hell yeah. There's going to be a lot of lobbying. Like, you know, what do we, uh, what do Australian accountants think of this? What do, what are farm groups? What are environmental groups? There's going to be, I mean, there's going to be a lot of talk. Um, I think their time frame is pretty ambitious, but mm. the reality is this is an early draft. And I know you guys often do a quick plug for, Farmer organisations and their lobbying and advocacy work, but yeah, this is a pretty good one for that. Take this to your local state farmer organisation. Um, talk, talk to VFF, talk to Agforce. Uh, we'll be discussing it. New South Wales farmers, the commodity bodies are going to have to get into it. Like, there's a lot of water to go under this bridge yet before those draft preliminary proposals from Treasury. I would, I would, I would love for somebody to do uh, what you call it, an FOI and see whether how much involvement uh, the big four had in this. <laughs> <laughs> but, royal but, Senate, Senate inquiry or at least a royal commission. It's, yeah. it's got big four consultancy written all over it. Yeah. Um, so, but the main takeaway from that management reporting is uh, ep3esg.com will be set up next week. <laughs> Um, our, our consulting division, uh, led by Oscar Pierce. Uh, but that's that's general, that's what it's going to come down to. It's going to be a consultant's wet dream. We're joking about this. Um, I'm not joking. I, I was talking to a company this morning about exactly this. Um, they, they're they're a, a farm data company. They're looking at this. Um, I should just point out one of the important things, um, and shout out to one of your former guests, David Littleproud. Dude knew what he was talking about. Um, up until like now, there's been a, this divergence of systems, right? So there's been a bit of a divergence. Cattle industry used one way of doing these calculations. The grains industry used sort of a couple, didn't really have a formal industry one. Everybody was doing their own thing and a bunch of commercial players were doing their own thing. And that risk, as I said earlier, of like a farmer having to fill 15 different forms in for 15 different vendors because everybody's got their own little way of doing it that was really that was really serious risk so little proud um pulled together the aia and you would have seen in the media recently they've released their first standardized way of doing this so that mm -hmm. you know for us like mixed grazing and cropping um we can use one tool to report our whole farm I, in theory i won't have to fill out 15 different forms i'm just doing it once and able to give that to my vendors um the trick will be them working with like the companies that help you do that, like the service providers, the ones doing the apps and the reporting certificates and all that sort of thing, those companies are then going to have to work with the farmers and the supply chains to work out how much of that information that I'm putting in to get my figure 
how much of that actually goes to the next guy. So where's the privacy concerns? Like, should if I'm reporting mandatory emissions or um, my company that's buying it is, is is having to report mandatory emissions, do I need to include my, my farm paddock boundaries or my glyphosate use or can I just give them a total net figure or is it going to be per ton or by that individual paddock that I supplied from like so there's details there but those like there are some good companies out there trying to do that work like build these tools in um so little proud had the right idea get a standard way of doing it so it's not a complete cost of fuck um but there's still a lot of questions about how that'll work so, like, I know you guys were joking about ESG's uh, episode three. I wasn't, um, it's uh, not a joke to other people. <laughs> it's happening now. It's our, it's our next uh, expansion. <laughs> um, <laughs> but let's, let's move on a bit, yeah? Yep. Carbon markets. Uh, these are, no, I wouldn't say they're complicated, yeah? But we, we spoke to Fiona a couple of months ago. Con- yep. Uh, yep. Episode 156, I think, Matt. Yep, 158. Fiona, Fiona Conroy. Yep. So with that, her, her views were hold on to carbon, don't sell it. What, what's your views on the carbon trading marketplace? Okay, so one thing that she didn't get into, um, which is a bugbear of mine, and we were talking about parasitic big fours and data companies and all this sort of, you know, that's the you, clipper that, tickets, that, you know, you, the ones, the intermediaries who are making... Yeah, okay, so my, my words, I'll stick by those. Um, here's the issue. Um, for a farmer to participate in the ERF, the Emissions Reduction Farm, and generate formal credits, ACUs, they have to go through an aggregator. The aggregators, and you talked a little bit about it with Fiona, was, you know, there's, there's weird and wonderful commercial conditions in there. So there's make good provisions if you lose your offsetting um, sequestered amounts. Um, there's pricing and forward selling. So some aggregators, you pay an upfront fee. Um, others, they take a percentage of those accus that are generated and that's how they make their money is by um, they take your accus that you've produced. You still have 100% of the production risk, but they take 50% of those as their fee for facilitating that. Um, now, the, the couple of govern, government reviews now have said, well, farmers should be able to go direct to Commonwealth government and do it directly without an aggregator, but no government, neither the previous nor this one, has actually got on and implemented those recommendations. So for now, you have to go through an aggregator and you could well be paying, you know, 40 to 60% of your total ACUs as the fee for service for those companies. Um, Some of which of those companies are owned by very large, very powerful international investors. Um, And you can Google search who those companies are. But, um, you know, these guys are not in it for a haircut or to feel good. They're in it because it's a very large profit that they could potentially be making. That's my biggest problem. I don't have a partner to dance with in terms of accus. I think it's a big area. And, God, I'm going to sound like an agro-socialist again, but, like, I don't get why we don't have more farmer groups going, look, there's a big margin in there in this provision of aggregator services. Um, there's probably going to be similar arrangements for the native, oh, sorry, for the nature repair bill. So, you know, it won't be farmers directly selling their biodiversity. It'll be groups of farmers working together under an aggregator that gets packaged and put in as a unit under the under the nature repair bill. So there's a 
big expansion in these facilitation services, whether it's carbon, whether it's ESG reporting, or whether it's you know biodiversity in, under the Nature Repair Bill. I think it's been a gap for farmer organisations for several years that they didn't get into this and say, we can do it at a either a not-for-profit mm-hmm. or a profit-for-purpose level. We can give our members a really good service where they're able to engage without the same commercial risks. Um, and, you know, for those associations, it could also generate a little bit of a profit for them. And they would still be cost competitive versus these other commercial providers in the system. So with that, everyone in the CMI, the Carbon Market uh, Institute, is probably going to hate me. Um, everyone who's looking at the emerging biodiversity markets as, as, a, as a profit steering enterprise for them is probably going to hate me. But I just don't understand why we don't have farmer organisations in there doing it at very low fees so that farmers can participate in these markets and still make the majority of the profit. Like in the end, like, bit like the, a bit like the industry super fund type idea, you know, exactly. Where they're, they're representing yeah. their membership base kind of thing. Uh, you know, Why would not, you and, give a, a huge proportion of your benefits? And I'm like, it actually comes down to the cost competitiveness of it. Um, years ago, I went to Borneo and I was, I was trying to explain this the other day to someone in nature repair markets. Um, we were talking to a couple of environmentalists and, and I were having a chat with a, with a federal um, member of parliament and, and they were trying to understand the nature repair market. And I use this case study. So years ago, I went to a place uh, in Borneo. There was a group of farmers between two national parks, right? And you've got the palm oil plantations moving north. And, you know, the, the orangutans needed to go through these farms where there was remnant vegetation and corridors. Um, but pretty soon, those corridors are going to be wiped out by the expansion of the palm industry. So uh, one of these four good funds could put their money in they went directly to the farmers they use they did use an ngo who was a not-for-profit and so the guys buying that improvement in biodiversity um were, were, were not spending a heap of money on transaction costs if they put a thousand bucks into that you know 99 $999 went to on the ground actions and that made it more competitive for the farmers and it made a better value for the investor who wanted to to purchase that biodiversity outcome if you did the same thing in Australia with koalas, so you, you know, I know you guys have had discussions before about you can't compare like for like, but let's say you're going a similar scenario with koalas. Should we keep a koala habitat or should we invest in a in a in an orangutan habitat? And you know, multinational investors think looking going, where do we spend our money? If you went to Australia, you're going to be paying six times the wages for the on-ground work. You're going to be paying two or three facilitators who are all making their 20 or 30%. Um, and, you know, essentially Australia, the idea of Australia being a green Wall Street is a bit of a joke because we're not cost competitive. We've got too many intermediaries taking their little share of these you know, markets. Well you, well, you know what then? Those bloody koalas should take a pay cut then. <laughs> I think it might be more that the facilitators yeah, <laughs> might need a pay cut. Second rate to to an orangutan. Orangutan's much better than a koala. Sorry. Boy. They're much closer to us. Koala. I've never, I've never actually seen a koala, to be honest. And it's not even a real bear. Exactly. It's fake. <laughs> it's like one of those bears you get. If you go, I've been to Malaysia loads of times, Oscar as well. And I've been to the Pataling markets. And koala bears is practically just the same as those fake t shirts. <laughs> Like orangutans are the real deal. Koalas are just fake bears. 
I'm burying. I'm glad the camera's off. I'm burying my head in my hands and weeping now. God. Um, but but you're right though, yeah. And this is where it comes down to: is Australia is an expensive place to operate anything. Yeah. I'll give you an example. Yeah. I'll tell you this example. Yeah. And the person might be listening to this. So I'm going to hide names. Um. This uh, this story is based on true events, but could incorporate fictional characters. <laughs> um. <clears throat> Queensland. Yeah. If you're building stuff, yeah, you've got to have somebody in there who is, um, if you're clearing land or whatever, yeah, mining, mm. building residential houses, factories, whatever it may be, yeah, you've got to have somebody in there who's assessing native flora and fauna, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and they just walk behind. They walk behind the tractors that are clearing because of health and safety rules. You can't walk in front of them. Not quite sure what you would find behind the tractor, um, but but on the flip side of that as well is like you're paid by the building company, mm-hmm. and you know what 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 what's that old saying, Matt? What my, what interests my boss fascinates me. Fascinates me, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 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 so like that's not an ES. Well, it is a biodiversity thing, but I just. Yeah. I find that the biodiversity nature repair bill is just so complicated. And it's also like at the moment it might've changed since the last time I looked at it, it's going to be a voluntary scheme. So companies like Woolworths and Coles and such like can voluntarily pay for this, but I'll give you another example. Yeah. And I'm, and this is based on a, on a, on a, on a factual story. And, and the main character in the story was me. Mm-hmm. I was booking flights the other day. And it comes up with, you know, would you like to voluntarily re- reduce your emissions? No, I wouldn't. Because I'm already paying $1,200 or whatever for a flight that used to be $600. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just, I just, I can't bring it. Well, that, that's, that's the cost pressures that Oscar was talking about before. That It's a bit like Maslow's, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Oh, and, this, is, this, and- this is getting very, very sort of uh, highbrow now, Matt. Well, I'm just saying that you've got those key, you know, those key requirements you need that are your basics and the, the, the wealthier you are, the more requirements you can fit in around your moral code. But as soon as the, you know, the cost pressures start to squeeze, things drop away. And sometimes those things are how organic your product is or how environmentally sustainable your product is or whether it's a cage egg or an egg from a free-range chicken. Exactly. Oscar, I want to ask you a question, sorry, before, before we go on. And it's related to biodiversity, yeah? Mm-hmm. In a voluntary market, yeah? And it's, yeah. A, it's a question I've always had for everyone that talks about biodiversity markets. And you know a bit more about it than probably anywhere else. We made the example of a koala or an orangutan, yeah? Mm-hmm. From a PR and marketing point of view, sexy as. Orangut- sexy as fuck. Like... Emblematic is the term. Emblematic mammalian investment. Yeah, you can stick a picture of a koala on your packet. You know, whatever it is. Good. Excellent. Yeah. But that's not... Biodiversity isn't the cute animals. Biodiversity is... uh, Cockroaches. Well, I had this discussion about biodiversity diversity programs in agriculture, which lack diversity. (laughs) Um, but, But the same thing here is when we're talking about biodiversity, is Woolworths going to go out and say, right, you know what? You know those snot-nosed lizards? Uh, we're protecting those. 
Let's yeah. let's let's stick a picture of a, a blobfish on our on our tuna cans. Uh, I am I'm so I'm so with you, and like that's exactly it. as Matt was saying. You know, these these self actualization goals that consumers or investors want to use to to push out to the general public. Yeah, it's going to be emblematic. We'll save the koalas. And we won't give a damn about, you know, the 35 species of cockroach uh, or, or, you know, leaf feeding species that are underneath that, that, that same habitat. And that is the problem, yes, with nature repair markets. Like, you know, absolutely. The, the way to fix that is actually not that difficult. We have NRM groups through the whole country. Um, or, or catchment management authorities, or in New South Wales, it's the, the local land services. But, but those NRM regional groups have actually got really good data sets. Um, and it was great to work with Kate Andrews when I was doing the NFF project. They have the capacity to say, look, here is the model of this particular ecological community, what it should look like in terms of plant composition, um, and then this will be the resulting habitat provision. These are the issues for connectivity, like even down to the level of if you have this species every so many metres, then this little species of bird can fly between it. But if you have that species at twice that distance, they won't have interconnectivity and, you know, your, your biodiversity corridor is no good. So, like, the, the NRM regions are so under tap. They've got the information there. And, yeah, uh, to me... That is a big fault of the nature repair market bill as it stands, that it doesn't say, here's a framework like this. If you want to invest in this stuff, here's what you do. I'll give you another one. Like one of the best things we've found here on farm, I've got one of those thermal scopes. I run traps, been killing a lot of cats, right? And you see that within three to six months, you start seeing more native birds. You're starting to see, you know, skinks, lizards, Nothing sexy, but you are starting to see a return to those little species there when you really go hard and kill every cat. I'm not sure that me um, standing there with a with a dead cat is a marketable product, but it's a huge there, bite there of was a, there, was a, there was a there was a guy a few years back on one of the current affair shows that used to go and kill cats like that, feral cats, and yeah. he made he made hats out of them. <laughs> Secondary he market. smelt bad too. I met him. Yeah, he smelt really bad. <laughs> he needed a shower. Anyway, sorry. That's but, um, but look, will investors direct their funds towards the best biodiversity bang for the buck? And the answer is no. So government should step in a little bit and say, we'll help provide the framework so that your investment is directed into the best possible need. Um, and it may not be something sexy and emblematic and high profile, but it's going to do the best bang for the buck. The question then is, does that mean companies go, oh, fuck that, I'm not interested in that. So I so, he so here's the solution, right? And I'm, I'm a man for solutions. And I'm providing this free of charge to the industry. I'm not even going to charge PwC rates. <laughs> um, we got the Red Tractor in the UK. Mm -hmm. Basically, you buy from Red Tractor providers. You can put a little Red Tractor on your packet of sausages and say supporting farmers or some nonsense like that, yeah? Yep. What we do is we have the koala emblem or kangaroo, whatever. And or just, EP, EP3 logo. Or EP support. Bank. Agwatch's logo. Actually, Agwatch's logo. No, we, we have a, I'm having a serious discussion here, Matt. Mm. So stop interrupting because we'll get complaints again. <laughs> let's, say, let's say we have a, a koala emblem brought to you by EP3 ESG Consultancy. But it, it allows companies to buy 
credits of biodiversity, but they don't need to know what the credits is. It's it could be skinks, it could be it could, it's overall biodiversity. So then they can put that label onto their goods. So it's just one thing. Because at the moment, you're talking about like the biodiversity program are a kind of a disparate sort of thing where you can individually voluntary voluntarily buy. Maybe it still is voluntary, but it's a voluntary industry run thing. I don't know. There's my solution. You know what? I love your solution. Um, my only question is, why the fuck is the federal government, who is the agent response? You know, the, the federal government has signed up to internationally binding obligatory uh, treaties on biodiversity, right? The federal government has said it's going to do something about this. You, yeah, start your business. But the federal government is the one who should be buying that. Like the federal government has responsibilities under the EPBC, which every time they review the EPBC legislation, they water it down, give less responsibilities to themselves, split it off to states or push it on to landholders, including farmers. I'm sorry. I know I'm, you guys are joking, but I'm quite serious. It is an absolutely appalling state of affairs that the federal government in Australia, and bipartisan criticism here, isn't doing exactly what you've just said, Andrew. Like, that is their job. They are the ones who have signed us up to treaties which limit biodiversity loss. And, you know, the current minister's even signed up to no biodiversity loss or no net biodiversity loss. Um, yeah, they're the ones who should be buying that product, exactly as you've said, uh, and spending billions on it. And weirdly enough, you know, green groups have actually done the numbers. It's going to be about one to $2 billion a year. So the sooner the federal government jumps in, throws an extra 1% GST on and directs all of that funding straight through to your company and its um, delivery of unbranded general biodiversity services in line with EPBC. Uh, only prob only probably we're going to have is great. Only probably we'll have is tax issues. Like we're already at. Well, the then you'll be big enough that you get to have mandatory emissions reporting. It'll be awesome. But the here's a question for you. Baselines. You talk about baselines for biodiversity, yeah? Uh, baselines for carbon, yeah? A-Bears came out saying that we have smashed our uh, emissions because we're 20% below the baseline set in 1990 for agricultural direct emissions, which mm -hmm. is kind of a similar level to the EU. EU's 21%, but Canada's like 35% plus. I think uh, a whole bunch of other countries, the US is 9% up on emissions. So... What do you think about that? Is that the proper way to be reflecting it? Like we're 20% down on emissions? Because I've got my theories and I'll go into them once I've heard yours. I don't mind throwing your opinion around on a bunch of topics, but baselines, man, I just, that's that's too dangerous for me. The, the fact of the matter is you've already talked about this on several reports. Part of the reasons we met our baselines is declining um, economic activities, right? So manufacturing in Australia collapsed since 1990. Um, the, 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 the sheep and cattle herds have changed. A whole bunch of activities have slowed down or stopped. Um, there has been some emissions improvements in the in in the Australian in the Australian numbers in terms of reduction of emissions from energy generation. So agriculture and energy generation are the only two sectors that have improved their performance against those baselines. Um, and there's of course been the the whole tree clearing. Um, avoided deforestation, the Australia clause under the Lulu CF, the land use and, and soil carbon categories. So, you know, yeah, Australia can make that claim. 
Uh, can individual farmers who delivered a lot of those benefits make those claims? Well, that comes back to earlier, our earlier topic about what are the rules for emissions reporting. Will these new rules and standards and systems that come in allow me to, uh, to account for and to count on my farms reporting the revegetation that's occurred since 1990? I don't know yet. Like, I can't tell you that. Should I be setting a baseline now? Um, you know, our cattle numbers are relatively high. Our soil carbon will be pretty high right now because it's been wet. Um, I, I, you know, or should I wait for the drought to set my own commercial baseline separate to that 1991? Like, it's just, it's such a difficult area. And like, like, like mentioned in episode 158, man, just do your own numbers and start working this. Look at your own scenarios. As an individual farm business, you, you can't make a decision on this until you're a lot better informed than most of us, myself included. Um, but then isn't isn't it isn't it true? Like you're you're in a, quite a different circumstance as a farmer, Oscar, because you ride into this, right? But your average run-of-the-mill farmer is not you or Fiona Conroy, with all you know, due respect to farmers. Um, they're they're just there wanting to you know raise their livestock, grow the crop, you know, do whatever it is they're doing in terms of the farming. That's their main kind of focus and activity and enjoyment and whatever. You know, have they have they got the additional time and energy and interest to chase down this stuff as well and and what's the what's the force and effect of it too like if you do all this stuff and set yourself up with some magic baseline that lines up exactly with your lowest possible farm soil carbon and then and then have a baseline that shows improvements and you know is that even relevant is it going to get you a premium or a discount like i don't know man like this is the thing there is so much here that an individual farmer can't really make a decision on because we don't have the tools, we don't have the experience, and is it going to be worthwhile or is it just another pain in the ass? Yeah, <laughs> good questions. I can't give you an answer that makes sense because I haven't worked it out for myself here, even on our farm. And like, you know, we're sixth generation. We we've got. What doesn't that? But then doesn't that say everything? That like, you, this is the type of stuff that you look at all the time and are well versed in and knowledgeable about, right? And, yep. even, and even you're struggling to work through it yourself. So how, how yep. does that leave a farmer that's not really that aware of all these aspects? This is it. And this is why I keep, you know, I keep coming back to that idea that we need some trusted service providers. And you're like Agforce are doing this. Um, you guys have probably heard of AgCare, which is Agforce's yeah, attempt to, to do emissions and um, natural capital recording. Like Agforce are on it. They've, their members have got a product that they can pick up and use and they've got skills and expertise in AgForce where they can, they can help farmers understand it and understand how to use it best. But other farm organisations haven't taken that forward-thinking approach and haven't got services for their members yet. And realistically, until New South Wales Farmers and VFF and, and, and the peak bodies start offering those sort of services, I'm not sure we're going to see much in terms of clear answers and clear messages for farmers to use to make their own decisions. Hmm. I think it's I think it's a difficulty because of the fact that <clears throat> uh, Matt just sent me a message saying we're getting a bit of reverb when we speak, but I can actually remove that afterwards. Um, it's okay, this in. No, no, we'll come. For, we'll, we'll have to fix it out. The that's where I think the big issue is, like. Again, with all respect to farmers, farmers, majority of farmers I've spoken to are just not interested. Yeah. 
Mm. And if and if you're not interested in something, you're not going to take any notice of it. And any like even even grain marketing, you know, it's it's a difficult thing that a lot of farmers that we tend to speak to don't have that much interest in it. So why are they going to be interested in carbon farming? And that, and that's the that's the big issue that we see is an education piece. But on top of that, it's too changeable. Like I was talking yesterday to a journalist um, about carbon markets because the accus have fallen in value. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I do not believe, and I had this discussion with a distinguished um, a professor, I think, or a doctor, uh, but maybe didn't have a particularly good grounding in markets about how the ACU system and, and the, the trading of ACUs is not a true market. Mm. <laughs> you might yeah. have laughing there. But it, it's not a true market in the way that wheat, wheat has been traded. It's, wheat is probably the second oldest industry. And uh, it's probably grain traders who supported the first oldest industry. <laughs> uh, Matt got that one. But the reality is, yeah, the, these are these are industries that are determined by supply and demand. Jimmy the farmer has got 100 tons of wheat. Janie the grain trader wants to buy 100 tons of wheat. And yeah. if there's a drought or a flood, then that supply of supply that Jenny has access to drops, so then she's got to pay up to buy it and vice versa. With the accus, my biggest concern is that it's largely a mandated market. Yes. It's also a mandated market where the supply or the demand can be changed at the stroke of a pen. Yes. And that makes, like we saw it last, last year, I think Angus Taylor prior to the, the new government coming in, basically said to people who'd already sold the credits, you can resell them again. No. He said, he said to the aggregators, not the farmers who did the work on the ground, he said to the aggregators, they had, and you're right, it is totally an artificial thing. Like, you know, the safeguard mechanism forces a demand, right? So if you, are, if you go over the safeguard threshold as a company, you have to buy those accus to offset it. So yeah, totally regulated. And that level um, could change. It could go down. It could go up potentially, uh, or, or the whole market could be abolished and, and the, you know, accus become worthless. So yes, all of that's true. What Minister Taylor did was um, allow the aggregators who had sold their carbon credits to the Commonwealth. It was almost like a reserve system. Yep. Those credits that were sold to the Commonwealth were allowed to go back onto the market there was a bit of a floor and ceiling arrangement with uh, the, the deals between aggregators and the Commonwealth. So those guys basically got to, they'd sold once to the Commonwealth, they were released of that, and then they could put them back onto the market at that higher price. That that increased the supply and drove the price of ACUs down. down. So that was yeah. that big drop. But, but, but that's what I'm saying. It's, it's very much an environment where policy decision can change the supply or the demand and at the same time, you've got things like the Chubb review, which, and there's still a lot of question about the integrity of all of these accus or a big Absolutely. chunk of them. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and it's an extraordinary piece of legislation, by the way, when you look at the ERF, because the minister is basically the decision maker. So it's not like we've got expert committees or someone else has, you know, um, got to make a decision or a recommendation, the minister's got to accept it. Your minister 
has pretty much total authority. It's a really weird and very, very powerful piece of legislation in terms of heads of power. So it is strange legislation and it is very susceptible, unlike other pieces of legislation, in ministerial direction and intervention, as we have seen in the way those markets worked and particularly the way that the pricing interventions happened. Yeah. Well, this is this is where I get really concerned is any time a government gets involved in the market, it tends to end in disaster. <laughs> but I just want to, I want to ask another question, yeah? And I think this is a question that is probably most pertinent for farmers. The mandatory reporting is important because it has a flow-on effect to farmers. <clears throat> However, farmers having to account for their emissions. It's not on the it's not on the cards just now. Not yet. I believe it will be by twenty thirty five, if not before. Um, what do you reckon? Am I wrong in that assumption? Well, we've covered everything, right? So let's say um, the safeguard level dropped to like ten thousand uh, tons of CO two e equivalent. A lot of farmers would then fall in the safeguard mechanism. And that's where, you know, all the people who talk about insetting, you need to keep your own accus, your own soil carbon or, or vegetation carbon credits. You need to keep those for the day that you need them. So they're anticipating that drop in the safeguard threshold down, very significantly down, so that their businesses are now suddenly within that, that threshold. Um, you know, do I think it's gonna happen? I don't know. I don't think so, personally. But I'm going to be honest, you know, I'm wrong more often than I'm not on these topics. Um, I thought ESG reporting was always going to be voluntary because everyone had said for 20 years ESG reporting was going to be voluntary. And now this month we've seen that report from Treasury saying actually part of ESG reporting is going to be mandatory. Again, the political decisions. Um, and the big question then is, you know, what's the political environment? If you had the right political climate, the safeguard mechanism could be dropped significantly. Um, but will Labor or an LNP government do that? Mm, you know, and, and to what force and effect too? Like, will, will would, would any federal government decide to drop that safeguard so low that they started really impairing on mum and dad, you know, small businesses? Um, maybe. Mm, not sure how the politics will let it go. It's it's gonna be interesting because if if let's let's take a look at New Zealand, the issues they've had there, uh, Netherlands, various yep. parts of Europe. Uh, I think Ireland's got some issues there, US uh, Canada. We're gonna have we're gonna get more involvement of governments in the operation of a farm. Under the under the sort of auspices of climate change and, and emissions, yeah, it has to be. So because what? Because what, so, whilst, whilst we've seen emissions dropping over the last twenty years or thirty years from agriculture, it's largely been because our sheep flock has declined by so much. That's where most of our carbon emission reductions have come from, which is actually really methane. Um, but to get to that next step of actually reducing emissions is probably going to require government intervention. 
Yeah, and like I'd I'd love a you know I'd love to you know get a, a government incentive grant to go and buy an electric tractor, but you can't buy one of those now. You know you can buy a biomethane uh, collecting facility, but I don't have a hundred thousand head feedlot, so I'm below the threshold for that to be economically viable. Um, you know what are the options that I can pursue on our small farm that will make our our, our emissions reduce in a quantifiable way? There's a few things, and a, but a lot of it's just general efficiency that we're doing anyway. You know, don't waste your fertilizer, don't spread it in a way that's going to volatilize out the next day. Um, you know, breed your cattle for for better feed efficiency because that's the same thing as breeding for low emissions. Yeah, there's a general focus on productivity that we're doing. My thinking is that if we ever get to that point where farmers are directly required to report and report a drop in their emissions from a baseline position as an individual business um, that will probably go back to the good old 1985 days of you know the 10,000 farmers protesting outside NFF house and marching up to Canberra um, we are going to see a huge failure in markets when that happens like you know this, this I think you can't underestimate the cost of transition. Um, the cost of transitioning to a low carbon economy is massive. It's most massive in certain industries and agriculture is one of those, right? So you've got to put a lot of dollars in. If that were to happen, I think it would be most likely politically that we would see an incredibly large amount of government assistance and uh, government funding being needed to continue those farming businesses. And I'm not just talking, you know, small farms like ours, I'm talking even corporates will need that sort of level of assistance. And that's just the economic realities. So I kind of think what's the balance of governments wanting to spend that huge amount or assist farmers in that huge way versus the political bonuses of bringing them in. And everyone's gonna have a different idea. Um, the only thing that I'm really worried about is actually agriculture being treated to the, differently to the rest of the economy. If we're in the same category as, you know, builders and tradies, and we're in the same categories as, you know, other small and medium enterprises um, throughout other sectors in the economy, and we're treated the same way as those, I can see us being relatively okay and not being seriously impaired by emissions threshold. Um, if we're treated differently, and we've seen that in some countries that you mentioned earlier, and, and agriculture gets picked on, um, then we're in a lot of shit, is the only way to say. Um, like it's, it, 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 it's, it gonna be, it's gonna be a lot easier to pick on agriculture because it is fragmented industry. You know, we're talking yeah. 80,000 individual farms. Yeah. So, Scary how fewer there are than say 20 years ago when I began that. <laughs> Yeah. career is like wow there's just so much fewer farms but and and how, um, and how and many the of them are member, how many members are part of a state farm organization well that's why the state farmer organizations have got to start being more commercially relevant and offering services that that make more sense in terms of dollar value like the advocacy and lobbying part is always the thing that we talk about and you know we have discussions about policies but in the end you know Every organisation that requires voluntary membership, whether it's your local show society or your national party branch or whatever, there's not a lot of young people and not a lot of business-focused people involved in those organisations anymore. So state farmer organisations are no different. It's the same for them. And, like, you know, 
people are a bit more mercenary and they kind of have to be in, in where they spend their time and their money. So farmer organisations have got to provide better value as well as their advocacy. And it's sort of, I think the two go in hand in hand. If we had more farmers as members of those farmer organisations, then the farmer organisation's voice would be stronger. Um, but to do that, you've got to make it more commercially relevant. Um, so what... Um... What in light of like this ESG proposals from Treasury are, are still proposals, like you said before, but we've spoken a bit more broadly about the environment as well in terms of you know what's happening in carbon markets, what's happening, you know, in this space. What what do you think in light of what we've discussed in light of some of these proposals? What do you think farmers? What should they be doing now to start to get themselves prepared for these types of things if they aren't already doing that? Well, I I mean. What I'm, what I'm doing, um, we're making sure we've got, so, you know, we've got a, a farm recording company that we use for our data. Um, I'm making sure, and they actually are working to adopt this new GAF tool so that I can easily and cheaply spit out a report if a buyer wants it. So for me, that's the first step. Make sure I'm recording the right things in the right way and get it done. Um, you know, that's just dealing with what's probably going to happen, whether it's next year or in five years' time. You know, it's just going to be what we have to do for business. Um, in terms of what I'm doing on farm, um, productivity focus, you know, improve your productivity. That will reduce your emissions intensity. So keep doing what we're doing. It's no different. Um, make sure we've got the resiliency and the, and the financial uh, legs to be able to invest where we have to. Um, you know, are we going to be buying new tractors in five years' time because there's a new emission standard or something like that? Well, make sure you've got the capital availability and access that you need to be able to spend the money that you may have to do where that is required to significantly reduce your emissions. Um, and, you know, get fucking angry. Go to a state farmer organisation meeting. Go to your branch meeting. They'll have you there. Even if you're not a member, they'll, they'll happily invite you in. You have your rant. You speak about what you're concerned with. And the chances are that they'll probably say, here's a membership form. Join in. Help us out. They'll probably put you onto a committee. If you've got half a brain and you're, you're keen and motivated on this issue and you're angry about it, good. Get involved. Put that anger into something that's going to matter and, you know, that's going to get you better political results in the end. All of this stuff is a political decision. Political lobbying and advocacy is the only thing that's going to make the outcomes better for farmers, right? Like naturally functioning markets won't do it. We need intervention and we need to get intervention. We need farmer groups getting amongst it. So, yeah, arc up troops. That's basically all I can say. Right, Oscar. We've kept you for quite a bit of time. It's a big one. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to end the conversation here on, a, on, a, on that serious note because we're trying to become a serious podcast. None of this hilarity that we've... Because um, we don't want any more complaints at the start of next week's podcast. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on because, Oscar, it has been... Yes. Three years since we set up this podcast. I know. And I've been sending requests to you on almost a monthly basis and you gave me bullshit excuses every time. And uh, so it's good that it you just, find... It just doesn't like you, Andrew. That's it doesn't the... like me. That's, that's <laughs> I had performance anxiety. I was so stressed. You guys you are d- like... You didn't have performance yeah, anxiety in the... Uh, what pub was that in Adelaide? Oh, the Eagle Rock night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the first time Oscar and I met up was at the Innovation Generation conference. 
Grand Grove's couple, leadership for him, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which was a few years ago. And uh, yeah, it was a bit of bit of hilarity that evening. People won't people won't expect that we have a bit of hilarity, Matt, but yeah. No, no, we're very we're very demure and mild mannered when we're out and about, especially when alcohol's involved. Exactly. I think I think it was maybe under sixty minutes between meeting uh, Andrew and uh Pants down, so you know that was that was pretty good. But the eagle rock did come on. I have that effect on people, Oscar. <laughs> any um, any notable scars? Because if you know, there's usually always notable scars from an uh, an event in the nighttime. With Andrew, usually, <laughs> I'm not as good as damaging myself uh, as you, Matt. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> speaking of which, and speaking about state farming organisations, uh, I give a, a plug at the end. Probably no one's mm. by this point anyway. They probably hung up. Mm. Uh, but we have the VFF conference in two weeks' time, uh, which we will be emceeing mm-hmm. from start to finish. So we'd like to thank our sponsors of that event, Nutrient Ag Solutions, uh, for making that possible. That's it. Good so, on you guys. Great to see you having out there. No worries. Anyway, Oscar, thanks very much for coming along. And, uh, yeah, to the loo. Okay, Marvel, thanks. Gents. Thank you. See you when you've got nothing on. <laughs>